Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So, astrology has been with us pretty much for the entire history of the human race. And if you go back to antiquity, the always popular antiquity, uh, you find that astrology is often elevated or revered or regarded more highly than, you know, astronomy. Because, in fact, people want to know what's going on, and they want to know what's going to happen. Uh, and so astrology makes that promise. And it's true, it tracks through history. Uh, we're going to talk about a Holy Roman Emperor, very into astrono- astrology, excuse me. I don't want to make that mistake. Uh, and we'll also talk about why it is experiencing a recrudescence now, especially among millennials and maybe Gen Z. We'll talk about all that, and then we'll talk about real astronomy, too, because this is public radio, and we don't just talk about astrology all the time. So yes, <laughs> astrology is always with us, but what's our real attitude towards it? I think for a long time, maybe for all of human history or close to it, uh, people have turned to astrology for answers, for predictions, but another percentage of humankind kind of has this, does this little odd hokey pokey with astrology, which I can sum up uh, with an anecdote relating to a different kind of supernatural belief. So in Ireland, if you go walking in the lanes at night, there's a lot of talk about how you might run into the little people, the fairy folk, the green man, and all that. So uh, my friend Ann Batterson, this is quite a few decades ago, was visiting in Ireland and was staying in a guest house, uh, and she noted that there were boarded up things, like the chimney flue was boarded up and stuff like that. And so she asked her hostess, do you believe in the little people? And her hostess said, no, but they're here. Uh, and, and that's sort of how I think a lot of us dance with astrology. We don't really believe in it, but it's here. Uh, and so we do. Uh, we're going to explore that today. Uh, why are we exploring that? Partly because there seems to be a recrudescence of interest. I mean, if you look at Google Trends, searches for birth chart and astrology hit five-year peaks in 2020. Uh, professional astrologers reporting that business is taking off during the pandemic, during lockdown. TikTok, which is like part of every single conversation, seems to have like a whole big astrology component. I could go on, but you get the idea. But I want to begin by talking about how historically astrology has worked, how it has been a tool of the powerful. Uh, Here to do that with us is Darren Hayton, uh, an associate professor of history and science at Haverford College and the author of The Crown and the Cosmos, Astrology and Politics of Maximilian I. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. 
Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So if we could dart way back in time, well before the Holy Roman Empire, uh, let's go back to the Roman Empire. <laughs> so in Greco-Roman antiquity, my sense is astrology is a pretty big deal uh, and that uh, emperors have staffs of astrologers. Some emperors like Hadrian claim to be astrologers. Uh, the, the astrological works of Ptolemy are pretty clearly more important or at least more avidly devoured and more esteemed uh, in, in the second century and even going forward into translation than his actual scientific astronomical picture uh, of the layout of the solar system. So maybe you could say a little bit more about that. What Before we even come to the subject of your book, what's going on with astrology and kind of public life historically? Well, so we have to think about uh the, the division that we tend to assume exists between astrology and astronomy is not a division that occurred, uh, would have been comprehensible to people in the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world, even into the well into the Middle Ages. If you were going to bother with the looking up at the heavens, you had to have a reason to do so. And that reason was generally offered by astrology. And it, it, ties into a set of assumptions about the relationship between the motions of the heavens, the movements of those bright spots that we call planets and stars, uh, and the effects that they would cause, uh, or at least correlate with down on earth. Uh, and so, sorry. No, you go ahead. Uh, and so we have um, from Babylonian antiquity through the, the Greek worlds and the Greek empires into the Roman empire, we have this developing notion that the motions of the heavens can be used if they're properly tracked and properly calculated, they can be used to give us some way of inferring likely occurrences on earth. And it seems as though that and the appetite, the the appetite that's wired into us to know what's going to happen, um, it may be part of a driver of improved science in the sense that in order to predict and know about, you know, astrological conjunctions, there's a lot of applied math that goes into that. Uh, so the people who were good at it tended to be elevated. Uh, the people who could figure this stuff out, even for the what we would regard now as maybe a, a pseudoscientific purpose, it might have been really kind of driving scientific advancement, although that's my crackpot theory. Feel free to shoot it down. No, I think I, I think you're you're spot on. Uh, again, there was no justifiable reason in antiquity merely to study the stars, um, uh, to determine you know motions of planets, and and be able to sort of develop the calculation techniques necessary to either demonstrate, calculate the positions of planets in times past, or to predict where planets would be in times future, except insofar as those predictions, those calculations would be useful for understanding what's happening on earth. Now, you're right, the, this is a, uh, it's a body of knowledge that is um, erudite. It's confined to a relatively small number of people who have not only the skill, but the time to develop these, these, de these domains of expertise. And those people, because they are recognized as having access to a set of predictive skills, those people become sought after, particularly by people, uh, emperors, princes, rulers, uh, people in power who want to uh, 
want to be able to have a sense of what's going to happen. Right. And occasionally, I came across this in just doing some research for the show. Occasionally, the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire would expel uh, all the astrologers. They'd round them up and kick them out. So there were some risks that went along with this. But as you're, I think you're suggesting for rulers, kind of a prestige having them, right? Uh, I, you know, I'm your emperor. I've got a lot of astrologers. I might even be an astrologer myself. So that's another reason to invest a certain amount of confidence uh, in me. And, and we should say this kind of tracks going forward, and you get more and more people in the business of maybe of trying to do predictions. If we look at medieval times, it seems as though there are all these, everybody from a monk all the way up to a cardinal might be doing some work with astrology. Uh, there's, If you want to get freaked out, there is, I think, one French cardinal who, who claims to use a certain conjunction uh, of planets to in a certain astrological sign to predict the bubonic plague, and it's this exact same one that seems to have occurred during our current pandemic. But there's a way in which, anyway, this that whole idea uh, uh, into the Middle Ages uh, of knowledge acquired through astrology is pretty persistent, uh, so I gather, anyway. Absolutely. And, and we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, it's a, if we think about a broad uh, definition or description of astrology, it's a system, a rigorous system of rules, uh, rules of, of calculation and rules of interpretation. The interpretive rules are a little less rigorous, but they're uh, shared in many ways that takes as its input intersubjectively verifiable data, positions of planets, the motions of planets, the speeds at which planets move, and runs that data through sophisticated calculations to produce uh, charts, if we think about the horoscopic chart, produce charts, very technical looking uh, diagrams, which can then be interpreted to tell us why something happened, what is likely to occur. You know, these are, this is a system that we still adhere to today when we think about science writ large, or we think about um, vaccines, or we think about any other scientific system that purports to use data that we can all agree is there and and filters it through rigorous intellectual systems. So uh -huh. let's get to your buddy, Max. Uh, early, <laughs> early early 16th century, uh, you get the Holy Roman Empire. He's uh, city-states are, are rampant. He's fighting with Venice. I think he wants to be Pope, right? He has to get through Venice in order to get to be Pope. But anyway, he's got all these problems. And as you point out, and this fascinates me, is that there's also an emerging market for information. Uh, their version of the internet is print, is, is movable type. Uh, and so suddenly you've got a way of distributing information and maybe an interest in distributing information that will once again build confidence in you and your expertise and maybe keep people, people kind of absorbed in the knowledge you're dropping. So Maximilian, although he may not be a dyed-in-the-wool astrologer at heart, <laughs> He realizes he's got a weapon here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you've hit on a really important aspect of astrology, certainly in the latter Middle Ages and the early modern period, which is to say it's a system of knowledge that everybody at some level accepted was valid. They will argue about the details, but everybody accepted it was valid. So if you're a ruler like Maximilian I, if you're a ruler, there you a, a lot of 
social, political, cultural authority accrues to you if you, on the one hand, have the, what you claim are the best astrologers at your court, and on the other hand, if you can claim some knowledge of the science of the stars yourself. You become sort of an expert mediator uh, in, in this sort of knowledge dissemination world, and it's an incredibly powerful political and cultural tool. Although, as you point out, his political contemporaries weren't that so sure, right? Some of the other people who, who might have been vying for power during that general time frame, they're not so sure astrologers are cruel, are cool. They might be using them uh, Ronald Reagan style or Nancy Reagan style, but they're not making a big deal out of it. He understands, perhaps uniquely at the moment, that, no, this is worth actually airing out in public. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I think Maximilian's great contribution is to... Um, draw attention to the way that he moved the astrologers out of the back room, the consulting rooms, and into the foreground. He's by no means the only person, the only ruler to have done that, but he did it in a conscious way that I think foregrounds or, or yeah, foregrounds the role of scientific knowledge as a mechanism of political practice, praxis. Um, all other rulers had their astrologers, popes, princes, kings, there were astrologers all over the place. But what Max brought to the conversation was the sort of highlighting astrologers role in his rule. Okay, this is a fascinating conversation, and I would like it to go on. I may have to just enroll in Haverford, though, because I, I, I have a time post I'm coming up to. Darren Hayton is an associate professor of history of science at Haverford College uh, and the author of The Crown and the Cosmos, Astrology and the Politics of Maximilian I. Actually, my niece is going to Haverford right now. I'm going to have her sign up for Darren's course. Not that I have any influence over my niece. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to talk uh, in the next segment about how this plays out in modernity. Uh, and we will also talk a little bit later about real astronomy. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Jesus was a Capricorn, he ate organic foods. 
He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. I don't know if that's, if that's theologically 100% correct. Um, but yes, we continue talking about astrology. We probably always will as a species. We're going to talk about it in much more modern terms right now with Julie Beck, a senior editor at The Atlantic and the author of the article, The New Age of Astrology. Julie Beck, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, you know, because, in fact, the Internet makes things so measurable, we can kind of look at this and say, yeah, there really does seem to be some kind of, I mean, not that astrology ever goes out of fashion, but it seems to be kind of radically in fashion a little bit more right now. Uh, Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I wrote that article in 2018, and I had kind of observed at the time that in recent years, I was just seeing a lot more people kind of casually discussing astrology in, in like pretty great detail, you know, like making jokes about Mercury retrograde on social media and things like that. Um, since then, I think that's remained true and maybe even ramped up a little bit. I certainly see a lot of just commodification of astrology kind of stuff in mainstream culture, like, I don't know, makeup collections that are astrology themed and, you know, things like that. Right. You've also got Instagram meme accounts. You've got venture capital-backed astrology apps like CoStar and Sanctuary. Uh, You've got – the internet is just really good at delivering stuff to people, and it's also good at helping people find one another, helping people find one another with common interests. So you sort of start there, right, that anything anybody was ever interested in, if you add social media, it's going to probably be on steroids, right? Yeah, if there's anything that you're interested in, you know, you can find as much information as you want about it. And I think that is kind of why this wave of astrology seems a little bit more in depth than maybe um, past waves, just because you can go into as much depth of research as you want um, and, you know, learn about what Mercury retrograde is and get your birth chart done for free on one of those apps that you mentioned. Well, I don't know if it's free, but you know what I mean. Um, There's just a, a great wealth of information available. And of course, like the nexus of community that social media provides for any interest. Right. So I think another thing that might be going on, and I'd love your thoughts, is when we look demographically at the generation known as millennials and Gen Z coming after them, and particularly when there are these Pew studies uh, about religious belief, what we see is that this younger cohort often identify as, quote unquote, nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. They don't have a particular religion that they follow. They don't like prayer. They don't like scripture. They don't like dogma, doctrine, things like that very much. But when you ask them questions about, do you experience a sense of wonder at the universe? Um, they Their numbers are as strong as any other generational cohorts and maybe a little bit stronger, which makes me wonder if there is a kind of spirituality that's looking for a place to go that regards certain other conventional sources of spiritual enrichment as kind of degraded at this point. Uh, and, and, you know, astrology is, is, is something where you, you're not necessarily buying into a, a doctrine or a liturgy. I'm wondering if that's attractive to millennials and, and Gen Z. I think so. I think that is part of um, the explanation, maybe not the full explanation. I think for some people, yeah, there are spiritual elements to astrology or tarot or things like that, that I think people are drawn to. Um, I don't know that that's true of everyone who 
has taken up an interest in astrology. I think in some cases, um, they just find it interesting or an interesting framework to think about their life. Um, almost like more in the vein of a personality test than a religion. But I think both of those things can be true for different people. Yeah, the personality test thing, that's an interesting part of it. Because I think another aspect of modern life, I'm sorry to sound like an old person, but I am an old person, uh, is that you're encountering people often for the first time on social media or on dating apps or things like that. So the question is, well, how how can I make a quick judgment that has something to it other than my gut instinct about the situation I'm in. And, and it doesn't have to even be a romantic relationship. It could be somebody else that you, you maybe you met the person online or something, or maybe you're thinking about taking a new job. Uh, you haven't had a chance to fully uh, acquire a lot of information about it. So one of the things that astrology could do is give you kind of a measuring stick to which I assume you would kind of meld some of your own actual judgments. But maybe astrology is is sort of the beginning of that process for some people. Yeah, well, I think since time immemorial, right, people love categorizing themselves. Um, <laughs> I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. What's your Harry Potter house? What's your Myers-Briggs? You know, what's your sign? I think all of those things are not new to this generation or to social media. Um, but I think I often think about it as a language or a shorthand. And, and that's how people I've interviewed described it to me too. You know, I didn't just come up with that. Um, it's if you do learn the language of astrology, right, then you can kind of communicate more complex concepts that are distilled into, you know, what Leos are thought to represent or that sort of thing. So I, I think it is a shorthand that kind of helps people communicate with each other things about their personality, things about their life and, um, you know, the things that they want for their life. Absolutely. By the way, Libra Hufflepuff INTP. Uh, You're into it too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And, and I think another thing here is obviously we're going through a period of anxiety. It could be argued that the anxiety started around 2015, 2016 with the rise of Trump. It made some people anxious anyway. Uh, across the waters, Brexit kind of did a similar thing. Then you segue from there uh, into a pandemic. I mean, it, it's one of the things we might be looking for are relatively easy things to talk about. I don't think fistfights typically break out about astrology, but they, they do about politics. They do about masks uh, on airplanes. Uh, the, the, maybe another thing about astrology is kind of the way sports is probably more for guys than for women, although I hate to do that kind of generalizing. But it's sort of something you can start a safe conversation about. Um, in some ways, yes. Um, but at the uh, on the other hand, you know, um, you'd be surprised how often in reaction to this article, I kind of got people coming at me very angry you know, saying I'm legitimizing astrology, um, reminding me that astrology is not a science, which I'm very aware of. And I think so are the people that I interviewed. So I think there's a surface level conversation about astrology that can happen where people are saying, you know, I can't believe people think this is a science, you know, how dumb can you be? And I actually did not find that the folks I interviewed um, thought that astrology was the same as, say, like biology. Um, it's just something different that they find to be a useful tool um, and that has an interesting place in their lives. And I find it more interesting to kind of talk about it at that level. But, you know, it can be controversial in that way sometimes, too. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I don't know. First of all, when they, people say it's a pseudoscience, I find that kind of funny because it's so clearly not even a pseudoscience. I mean, there, it doesn't really feel like a science in any way. And it, yeah, I mean, look, a, a good tool for personal financial growth is not a slot machine. But slot machines are fun. People use them anyway. You know, I mean, there's a lot, there's smarter things they could do with their money. Uh, and there's more scientific things you can do than with astrology. But some of it's fun. And I assume, and I, I kind of got this from your article, that people though not necessarily believing it chapter and verse, think, well, once again, you need to start a thought process about the situation you're in somehow. Like, what's going to happen to me? What's going on in my life right now? Am I going to stay with this person? Am I going to get a new job? Well, you could start with astrology as long as you know that it it isn't really, you know, chapter and verse what's going to happen. Yeah, the language of astrology, I think, provides for people a structure that can be comforting. Um, you know, it, it does kind of neatly categorize these things into, you know, okay, this planet um, controls this and this planet controls that. And um, it also provides a way for people to kind of forecast into the future, um, which is something that humans love to do. That's how our brains work. We, you know, turn our lives into narratives and we're, you know, very forward thinking as a species. And that's kind of a uniquely human thing. And so astrology does provide a structure to think about your future and what might happen in your future. Uh, You know, wouldn't say that the predictions are real or true, but I do think that people find some comfort in that. And and it may be um, a useful language to think about how they want their future to unfold and, and kind of provide some comfort during stressful times. Right. And all predictions are potentially untrue. Uh, Nate Silver doesn't have quite the glowing luster that he had circa 2008 to 2012. Uh, People get things wrong. The entire commentariat got the 2016 uh, election wrong. Betting markets aren't always right. Uh, You know, it, it seems as though uh, maybe that's also another thing that's going on here. You, yeah, everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Everybody wants to know the future. But if anybody knew the future, we wouldn't have had the 2008 financial crisis. We wouldn't. Have, we wouldn't have had the 2016 election be such a shock. Maybe astrology, in the sense that we don't take it entirely seriously, is a safer way to think about predictive behavior. Yeah, I think it's. I think the appeal kind of boils down to a couple of things that we've been circling around, and and one is the sort of personality test, insight into yourself, self-reflection kind of tool. And then the other is the sort of predictive um, narrative stuff of, yeah, what's going to happen? And maybe if I'm really stressed about my job, I might turn to my horoscope to just see if I can find some comfort there. You know, obviously no one can predict the future through through any tool perfectly, um, as you said, but it's it's something that humans just innately want anyway, right? And especially when we are anxious or stressed, like we just want to find that comfort and, and think maybe everything's going to be okay. All right. So Julie Beck, the final question and probably the question you're dreading, what's your relationship to astrology? Did it change as a result of writing the article too? Sure. Um, I My relationship to astrology is um, intellectual curiosity, I would say. Um, I have read my horoscope on occasion for sure, and definitely read it more when I was reporting this article, um, you know, probably unsurprisingly. But I think what's really interesting to me is just how people use these tools in their lives and like what importance they place on them. And so I was sort of curious understanding, you know, where this resurging interest was coming from, like 
almost from a sociological standpoint of like, why is this something that's really resonating right now? What is it about the culture that makes this feel so appealing? And so, so that's kind of still how I think about it. Um, I wouldn't say I've kept up super intensely since I wrote this piece, but it, it does seem to still be something that has a foothold in the culture. And I definitely find that interesting. Well, we find you interesting too, Julie Beck, senior editor at The Atlantic. Um, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. All right, we're back. It's time to say some thank yous. Uh, the first uh, thank yous go out to the control room uh, where Dylan Rays has been uh, holding down the beat under the watchful eye of Cat Pastor. Uh, this particular show uh, was uh, produced by uh, our ace uh, intern, Sarah Gasparato, under the watchful eye of Lily Tyson. Uh, but what, right now what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about I guess the dichotomy, I think that's probably the right way to put it, between astronomy astrology and astronomy. Although, let me just quickly say this, two things. Um, one of them is that uh, I knew in the 1980s uh, a guy who was chief of psychiatry at a medium-sized general hospital uh, in Connecticut. And he did very detailed, I mean the detailed where you have to know the hour and minute uh, of your uh, of your birth, detailed uh, charts on all of his patients. I don't think he made a big deal out of it, but he did that. Uh, and it was sort of part of his treatment plan for his uh, patients. And then the other thing is you don't have to go back that far before these professions start to overlap. Uh, Johannes Kepler uh, did a little bit of both. I think astrology was probably a better way to put uh, food on the table uh, in the early 17th century. He wasn't crazy about it. He had kind of love-hate relationship with it. Uh, but uh, here is one of the real founders uh, of uh, of modern astronomy or uh, great influencers, influencers of modern astronomy. And what's he doing? He's doing horoscopes. So there you go. Uh, but here to talk about this is somebody who is, knows way more about this than I do. That's Emily Levesque, a professor at the University of Washington's astronomy department, the author of The Last Stargate, the Enduring Story of Astronomy's, Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. Uh, and uh, we also recommend to you her excellent TED Talk, A Stellar History of Modern Astronomy. So, uh, Emily Levesque, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know, certainly in the modern moment, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a pretty bright line drawn between astronomy and astrology. As we kind of covered in our first segment, the, the early astrologists had to do a lot of astronomy to be able to do any astrology at all. But that's, I assume, ceased to be an important relationship now. Yeah, very much so. I think today astronomy and astrology have pretty much nothing in common besides the names sounding quite similar and the fact that we both focus on what's in the sky. And speaking of what's in the sky, I also wonder, because in fact, astronomy is constantly evolving, constantly discovering uh, new things. Uh, and I'm kind of wondering uh, how much those changes could impact astrology. I guess what I mean, for, for example, uh, the ESA Gaia spacecraft launched in 2013 has been recording the position and movements of the nearest billion or so stars, allowing researchers to trace the Milky Way's history like never before. Do things like that kind of could it affect ultimately what, what your chart was if you had such a thing as a chart? It's a great question because 
what Gaia does is very much focus on the exact positions of stars, and that's where a lot of the roots of astrology came from. Astrology tends to focus on the positions of things like constellations and the constellations we can see with the naked eye. And most of what Gaia's doing, and most of what's so amazing about it, is that it's plotting the positions of billions of stars much dimmer than what our eyes can see. So we're not getting changes from an observatory like Gaia that affect the way the constellations look or how we know the constellations move. But it does open up a lot of new questions about how the stars work on an astronomical scale. So um, some of the things that get talked about in astrology uh, seem like those terms are specific to astrology, but uh, in our kind of preparation for the show, it became clear that Mercury in retrograde isn't something that astrologers invented. It's something astronomers know about. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so people are sometimes surprised to learn that Mercury being in retrograde is a real thing, but it's a consequence of science and physics. It doesn't mean anything strange is happening here on Earth. So astronomers for centuries have been really great at tracking the motions of the planets across the sky from night to night. And usually we see the planets moving from west to east. When we say that Mercury's in retrograde, all we mean is that it looks like it's moving backward from east to west. This happens just because of an illusion coming from the fact that Earth and Mercury orbit the sun at different speeds. It's kind of like when you're looking out the car window while you're driving on a highway and watching other cars. If you're driving faster than somebody, it might look to you like that car is suddenly going backwards, but it's just kind of a trick of perspective. And we're seeing the same thing when we see Mercury, Mercury temporarily look like it's going backwards. It happens really regularly. There's nothing sinister about it. It's just a quirk of planetary orbits. I mean, you would think that people who became passionate about astrology might gradually becoming aware of the fact that Mercury in retrograde or any other comparable uh, term about configurations, um, you, you think that maybe they would think, wow, I, I should know more about this. This is really a thing. Uh, but I don't get the feeling that that membrane is particularly porous, that, that you have people pouring into your classrooms because of their initial interest in astrology. Not really. I don't tend to have students showing up expecting to learn about horoscopes instead of physics and then getting surprised. I think that this is actually where the big distinction has always been between astrology and astronomy, because it's the difference between studying the sky to explain the sky and then studying the sky to explain ourselves. So I think that's where the two will quickly branch. Yes. So um, uh, let's go back to one other thing that at least has kind of its, some of its roots in uh, astrology, and that is the notion of a sign. I mean, no astronomer is going to be seriously interested in whether or not I'm a Libra. Uh, but Libra means something. It's a constellation. Maybe just talk a little bit about the role that constellations do play in real astronomy. Yeah, the, um, the signs of the zodiac, they really do come from 12 familiar constellations that we see in the night sky. Um, anyone who's done some stargazing knows that we see different constellations at different times of year. And this is thanks to the fact that the Earth is orbiting the sun. This means that depending on where we are in our orbit, some constellations are going to be up at night and really easy to see. Others are going to be in the sky during the day when we can't really see them because our daytime sky is too bright. The 12 constellations of the zodiac are really evenly spaced around our orbit, so a different one is front and center in the sky every month. But I think what surprises a lot of people is that this doesn't really connect to astrological star signs the way that you might think. Uh, you mentioned that you're a Libra, so you'd imagine that if you went out at night on your birthday, you could see Libra above you in the sky, right? Yeah, that stands uh, to reason, yeah. 
Yeah, so the zodiac actually works in exactly the opposite way. You'd have no chance of seeing Libra on your birthday because Libra that day is up in the middle of the day. It's in the sky when it's right behind the sun, which from a stargazing perspective makes it impossible to see. So this is what astrologers mean when they talk about the sun being, you know, in a particular constellation, but this doesn't have any impact on who we are, on our personalities. From an astronomer's perspective, this just means that it's a terrible time to see that constellation and those stars. So it's sometimes a bit disappointing to think, oh, well, I'm a Libra. I'll go out and see Libra on my birthday and realize that you'll have to wait until the absolute opposite time of year to see your constellation. Right. So uh, oddly enough, astrologers and astronomers might be interested in the same thing, but in different ways. You would really care about, you know, where the sun is relative to uh, a constellation or, or something like that, or uh, whatever the lyrics to the Age of Aquarius are, when it, the, the moon's in the seventh house and Mercury's aligned with Mars. You would care about that, not because it's any particular predictor of what kind of vacation you're going to have, but because it affects your work life. Exactly. It might affect when we don't want to take a vacation because it might be when we want to point our telescopes in that part of the sky. We quickly learn, and I teach this in my astronomy classes, how to, just based on the time of year, quickly figure out what stars or what part of the night sky is best to observe. So we care about it very much from our work, not so much in terms of trying to plan out our destinies. So let me just, as the last area to get into here, um, I mean, you're obviously a very good-natured uh, person. Uh, if you were less good-natured, I would think you would spend a lot of time being pissed off that people are more interested in astrology and consume more uh, you know, literature about it and stuff like that, particularly at a time when, I, you know, every time we do a show about 20th or now about 21st century astronomy, I mean, it's always amazing what's happening. I mean, here in the 21st century, so many different things have happened. Uh, we have so much exploration going on. We're finding, you know, water jets on one of the moons of Saturn. Uh, we're learning, we're de actually detecting gravitational waves in, in space. We're discovering exoplanets, hot Jupiters uh, that are boiling away because they're too close to their suns, uh, and different planets that have two suns, like in Star Wars. I mean, there's so much amazing stuff going on. You'd think that would be a good source of wonderment as opposed to, you know, picking up the newspaper and figuring out you know, what's going to happen to Aries today. I agree. And I, I wish that what would happen more is that people would maybe get curious about their horoscope and then get curious about the constellation associated with that horoscope and then start learning about how stars work and how we study them and why they're so interesting. I mean, I can't entirely criticize anything that gets people looking up, but I wish that it would spark more curiosity about the night sky because people are amazed at the questions we can answer. Now, we can explain exactly why a star works the way it does. Like you've mentioned, we're finding planets around other stars. We're studying colliding black holes and these tiny little ripples in space-time that they produce. We can launch telescopes that can see to the other end of the universe. And that is so unbelievably exciting. And I would love to see that excitement get sparked in everybody who's just curious about stargazing, period. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that it takes a certain amount of work if you want to be interested in astrology. I mean, really interested in astrology to understand all this stuff. You got to master a lot of terminology. You got to master some concepts that are invoked and things like that. If you spent the same amount of time mastering the kinds of things that we're talking about now, you would know so many more amazing things. It might be harder to apply them to your daily life. 
but your sense of being kind of energized about what existence is in the universe would be a very different one. Exactly. I have a lot of people ask me, you know, how do I get into amateur astronomy? And sometimes people think you have to go out and buy a really expensive telescope or find an incredibly dark place to look at the sky. And you can go out in your backyard, even in a city, and just admire the moon or get an app on your phone that helps you identify constellations. It's a wonderfully easy science to get excited about. And I think maybe you're right, you're not connecting it as much to your day-to-day life, but you're connecting your life and your curiosity to an entire universe, which is exciting in its own way. Yeah, I think also, I mean, another thing you could do is just read about stuff that's happening. Uh, and I mean, you know, we we investigated a comet recently in a way that we've never been able to do before. Uh, I mean, there's just so much incredible stuff like that. I mean, there was uh, an event horizon telescope image of the shadow of a black hole at the heart of a galaxy. Uh, But there is, I think, some human uh, desire to look at the sky, right? I mean, there's some reason why we can't stop looking upward. Maybe you can kind of take us to our conclusion with that idea. I, it's what drew me to astronomy. It's what drew so many of my colleagues and I to astronomy is you just have to look up and you look up and see something very mysterious and you start wondering what it is and why it works the way it does. And one kind of funny thing that I've always thought about astrology is I know of no professional astronomers who treat astrology as a serious science. And we're we're the experts on studying the stars and planets. So if they did predict our personalities or affect our lives this way, we would be the first to know. But what's funny is astronomers' lives are the ones most directly impacted by the stars in a lot of ways. The people who operated and conceived of the Event Horizon Telescope and took that first picture of a black hole, where they traveled, what they did, how their careers have gone, were all dictated by this study of the sky. So I've always found it a little bit funny that our lives are very directly connected to what's going on in the universe, but it comes from our curiosity about what we see and our need to explain what we're seeing and our excitement about sharing what we found with everybody. So if we can spread that and really get more people curious about what they see when they look up and wondering what it tells them about the cosmos instead of just what it tells them about themselves, I think that really taps into a fundamental aspect of human nature that we really all do share. Right. So, first of all, I think you've brought uh, the show to a perfect landing or splashdown, perhaps, in the case of uh, (laughs) space travel. Uh, Emily Levesque is a professor at the University of Washington's Astronomy Department and the author of The Last Stargazers, the enduring uh, story of astronomy's vanishing explorers. Special thanks to Sarah Gasparato. She's one of our uh, interns right now. It's always exciting when an intern puts together uh, her own show and gets it on the air with a lot of help from our our crew. And Lily Tyson certainly has been uh, a major advisor. But that's uh, it's a terrific thing. And, and I hope that shows like this are a terrific thing for you, too. Some people are going to come on right now and ask you uh, to support the kind of programming that we do. If you have fun with us and are stimulated by us every day, now's a great time to pledge because we will get some of the credit. So thanks for everything. Thanks to the whole crew here and get ready to be generous. <laughs>